Home is more than just the sticks and the bricks that you live in. My name is Keith. I am your host. And today we have hit episode six, which may not seem like a big deal to the tens and tens of you who are currently listening to this, but it's a big deal to me because I wasn't sure I could make it this far. Putting together this much content and editing the audio and arranging the interviews and even just sitting down and recording an intro like this was more of a commitment than I anticipated, but it's been such a great experience, and of course I'm going to keep doing it. Today I'm just wicked excited because this is one of the interviews that I've been most looking forward to publishing. Today I'm talking to Dixie Garrison, who is the principal at West Jordan Middle School, about public education and her specific Utah journey, and really there's a few things where we discuss some of the misconceptions that maybe we as the general public have about public education or public educators. It's just, it's a fantastic interview. Dixie's so well-spoken. I do have a big mouth and we got kind of in the weeds from time to time. So this is a little bit longer episode. I think we're going to push up on an hour. Without any further delay, here is Dixie Garrison. Mom, yeah. Both in look and in the way that she interacts with people. <laughs> so, um, okay. And I really appreciate you coming on and being willing to discuss these things. Something that I say often, and it's probably just going to end up being in any time I interview anybody, is I, I feel like I know all the best people. <laughs> <laughs> and then those people in turn have been willing to, to come and, and talk about things on the podcast. But I, just, I feel like I just know really great people who have a, an ability to share their story and help us understand some more of what they do, you know, whether it's an artist or whether it's like yourself, a school administrator, that if we can kind of all wrap our brains around each other's experiences, we can start to get each other more and maybe have a little less turmoil between us because living here is an interesting thing. Living in Utah is a interesting experience for anybody, you know, wherever yeah. you fit culturally. I think the more that we understand one another, the better all of us are going to have an experience. Um, so anyhow, I appreciate you That's coming good. on. That's great. <laughs> so thanks for coming over. Thanks um, for contacting me, Keith. So for, first of all, I just kind of want to get your story. Like, how did you end up in Utah? Mm -hmm. And then what is it that keeps you here? Like I say, nobody stays yeah, here by it, accident. So why don't you go ahead and just kind of mm -hmm. share with us how you ended up here and share some of that. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm a Utah girl born in Sandy, Utah. Well, I was born in Provo, but grew up in Sandy. Um, and I haven't gone too far away. I haven't felt the need to. My parents were both from out of state and did the kind of classic meet each other at BYU thing and settle down in Utah. So my mom's from North Carolina. So that's where the name Dixie mm. comes from. Okay. So I'm named after the true South Dixieland. <laughs> And um, my story and what's brought me to this point is I come from a family of educators. There, there are multiple people in my family who are educators. It's generational, especially on my dad's side. His mother was an educator. His grandfather was one of the first teachers in Idaho to open a school and so just a ton of family in education. And I didn't really realize how unique that was until I grew up and, you know, like, oh, everybody in your family, they're all teachers. It's kind of like the family business. And it's not really a business that brings in a great amount of capital other than it brings in social capital, like a rich experience with people. 
is I couldn't go anywhere without somebody saying, hey, aren't you Bruce Garrison or aren't you Patsy Garrison? (laughs) Hey, you taught me preschool. And, you know, kids running up to my mom in the mall and throwing their arms around her. And they're my age, you know, at high school age when I was growing up, we could be traveling out of state anywhere and we'd run into people who my dad had been their principal or whatever. So I come from a family of educators and grew up not really knowing any different. Like, this is what we do. If you're a Garrison kid, you go into education. And for me, I I enjoyed art, drawing and painting. I went to the U on an art scholarship. I was like the Sterling Scholar of Art. I did student government and sports and all these things. And, And all of the kids in our family were highly accomplished. And I think, and I'll loop back around to this as a credit to my parents and how involved they were in our education. It wasn't necessarily that we had any great talent, anything better out there than what any other kid was capable of. It was that we were being pushed. Mm-hmm. We were being pushed at home to go the extra mile. And, you know, you're going to go for that award, aren't you? Or you're going to compete in that event, aren't you? Or you're going to, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they, were, they were highly involved in our extracurricular and academic lives, you know. So we were extremely involved in school as kids. And then when I went to college... I studied art and I loved art and the I was looking to do something with art and psychology, but, you know, the natural thing was to become a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like, okay, mom and dad were both educators. My dad was a principal for a long time in this same school district, actually in the same building that I'm at. He, this was his first principalship, West Jordan Middle School. Now, is this your first This is my first too? principalship, same school, and it was just happenstance. Mm-hmm. I was an assistant principal for 10 years prior to being named a principal, and I held some other positions in the district as well. So it's really cool to, if you're talking my story, I I have a great legacy with my family. I grew up listening to my mom and dad problem solve in the evening about things in their day that had occurred. And for my mom, it would be little tiny minute kinds of things that would happen in the preschool, like so-and-so was stealing so-and-so's glue. And (laughs) Mm -hmm. for my dad, it would be big, huge problems, (laughs) but they both valued each other's experiences and they were both, you know, highly effective and had a great, great deal of impact on kids. So I've been in education. This is my 18th year. I I have a a hard time with that because that just makes me feel old. We're old, Keith. (laughs) (laughs) You were just describing how old your kids are. And I have a daughter turning 19 this summer. So, um, you know, we knew each other back before we were married. And it's Mm. cool that you bring people together from all walks of life in your podcast and talking about living here because we do meet some really cool people here in Utah. And I think we're more diverse than people think. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the point I kind of make is because Utah is such an interesting place and it's perceived as being one certain way. And it's just not the case, even inside of the highly conservative aspect that people think of as Utah, it breaks Mm -hmm. down so much differently. There's this idea of that everyone in Utah thinks and acts and looks the same, and it's just not so. It's not so, but we we do kind of have this frame of reference, this 
this overriding culture that we mm-hmm. all can relate to, you know, and um, and I think education is a big part of that. Education is, has always been highly valued by families in Utah, maybe haven't put their money mm-hmm. where their mouth is, but they have put a great deal of emphasis on education for their kids. I see it being highly valued in families, not only just the core academics, but it seems that families are very much into having their kids involved in playing a, a musical instrument or doing doing something artistic or sports, like, you know, just a full experience mm-hmm. in school. Like I see families really pushing their kids to be involved. And so I think that's awesome. It's, it seems to be highly valued by everyone. Maybe they don't want their property taxes raised. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's what it comes down to because, you know, we buy these big homes to house our, our big families mm-hmm. and we don't want to pay property taxes. I remember when the district went through the split mm-hmm. and that was all based on property taxes and yep. revenue. Like the east side was supporting the west side, not fully supporting, but they but were I mean, seeing the property taxes were higher up higher that way. And and they're, yeah, we had all these, all these new buildings were being built out west and mm-hmm. you know and then you know you still had like alta high school that was housing some insane percentage of students too many right for the facilities and i, I mean i can understand yeah it was living just up there too and paying thin, those. you know yeah. there and then there were some really nice new buildings that went in out here on the west side i was at mount jordan middle school as a vice principal and funny enough i had gone to school there as a student mm. so there were about 10 teachers there that had had me as a student <laughs> that i i came back as I need, their boss i need to know which I need to know which teachers. Oh, we had like who was still there. Mr. Morris, Mr. Murphy, Mr. Myers. Oh my gosh. Um, Miss Cornea, the PE teacher Mm -hmm. who scared the crap out of me. She was still there. Went back as her boss, you know. And I went to Mount Jordan too. Right, Miss Cornea was there. And you did you take Spanish from Mr. Morris? I did not. I did not. Everybody knew Mr. Morris. Yeah, because he he was like the the quote unquote cool teacher. Cool teacher. They had their band, the Cats, that would come. Because I did have Mr. Ricks, but. Mr. Ricks was, was, was still he, there. Is he still there? Mm-hmm. Mr. Ricks was still there. There were, like I said, it, I, at one time when I first got there, I, I counted there were 10 people who had been there, whether it was teachers or office staff and people like that. that I, were, I, want, I want you to talk a little bit more about that just because I think that's so interesting. Funny. To, what was that like then coming back? How old were you when you went back there? You were well, vice I principal was, there. That right? was my first assignment as a vice principal mm-hmm. and I was a young vice principal. So I was only 27. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. And turned 28 that fall. So like okay, okay, in well. September, <laughs> I, that was kind of my, I was one of those that was young for my grade too, going through school. Mm-hmm. So I was 28 and I went back there and that was my first assignment as a vice principal. And I remember walking in and it was a building just like this one, like I, West I, Jordan I, Middle School. I noticed that when I yeah. walked in, I'm like, well, this looks... Just like Mount Jordan. Weird, and familiar. And they have a pool and all uh. this. Yeah. And um, everything looked small. You know, I was like, <laughs> oh, man. And it was like walking back in time. And I just felt really weird. It was hard for me to transition into being that. It, it was kind of a tough placement for me because because of those teachers who were my senior. And then I came in as their assistant principal and I was brand new. And the nice thing about that is they knew who I was and I had a rapport with them. Even though I had done some crazy things as a middle school kid, 
we won't talk about all of those so things because <laughs> I don't we, we I don't want my current students in, to know in, what uh, I did, but I yesterday. did some things, and um, it was funny. I did have to go around and apologize to some teachers. <laughs> I was like, "Hi, do you remember me?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, I remember you, and I remember your brothers and sisters." And they were, well, you, you your, know, your family is kind of this <laughs> dynastic family. They're very in, in Sandy specifically. Uh, well, I would say bombastic or like. Well, but, but you all like, when you say you're, you and your siblings weren't like any more oh. talented than anyone else, I just, I almost have to disagree because it's like each one of you was exceptional at this other weird thing. Yeah. You were this fantastic artist. I remember that from uh-huh. back, you know, back in those days. Yeah. And then you, very big into the arts, yeah. my family, or like, um, my oldest sis was a competitive gymnast and a cheerleader and mm. a dancer. And, you know, she and was you just the, super you talented. The tail end, you've got all the super high class, you know, theater and drama. Yep. Stuff. Yeah. I've got my sis doing acting now right? and she's yeah, made for performing. And so, yeah, we had a really fun family. We always had fun at our house, but Mount Jordan. Yeah. Going back yeah, to back Mount to that, yeah. Jordan. I was in, I was at Mount Jordan as a vice principal when some new middle schools went in here in Jordan district and they mm. were really nice. And I was like, when are they going to upgrade this school? And so I think that's what the East side residents, you know, I don't want to talk about that forever because it's, it's, yeah. we're it's down, an important, we're it's down an important the road aspect of what's that. going on. Yeah. But that was something that was sad for me. It was because Jordan district was like family. Mm-hmm. To me, I'd grown up in Jordan District as a student. My dad was a longtime administrator with the district. He he had worked in the district for 28 years and had been at several schools, open new schools. And so when that district split happened, it was like a nasty, ugly divorce. It was it was awful. It was so sad. And they tried to keep the jobs out here on the west side, and they ended up carrying, getting to your your discussion on being top heavy in a district or mm-hmm. issues that administrators face. That was a huge discussion when the district split because we went down to half the size we were before as Jordan district and they were trying to keep people's jobs. And then we ended up in the hole on our operational money. So there's two kinds of pots in mm-hmm. education. There's the capital outlay and that builds your buildings, your actual physical facilities. And then there's maintenance and operation. And out of your M&O money, that's that's salaries. That's everybody's. That's how you pay everybody. And that's how you fund things in the school supplies when you're talking reams of paper and mm. things like that. Those things all come out of M&O money. So capital money is a totally different pot. So when the district was in the hole here, $30 million dollars, they were in the hole on M&O money. They weren't in the hole on capital, although capital was scarce. Mm-hmm. Capital outlay money was scarce. And that's where we just passed this big bond. That's capital outlay money. So I always hear people when we were going out for that bond campaign, the first one that failed, I mean, not first, but most mm-hmm. recent, the first one as a new district that we'd gone out for, Jordan District, done bonds, multiple bonds mm-hmm. in the past, but as a new district. As a new district. Yeah. Um, I was working in facilities at the time or had just left facilities. So there was a lot of discussion on, well, you know, that's money it's just going to go to pay administrators and this and that. And so that's a Mm, misconception because it's like, no, we're passing a bond to build buildings. It can't. 
it can't go because it's in this bucket that we can't grab. Yeah, you can't. It's not used for salaries. It's like not even legally allowable Mm -hmm. to use capital outlay money to pay people. So there's a big misconception there. Like, oh, your superintendent's making all this money. You don't need a bond. And it's like, (laughs) the superintendent's salary is not going to build a whole school. Even even if the superintendent made 30% less, the impact that would have district-wide is... It's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it's not. It's nothing. You know, when you're talking right. about the entire district's t- budget and the operating expenses, the day to day, the M and O, as as you yeah. say. Yeah. So there's there's just total misconceptions on that. Mm. When when that first bond failed, now granted, as a district, we went big. It was like go big or go home on that mm. bond, and we got sent home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a big big package. We're really fortunate here at West Jordan Middle School to be included in this new bond because it could have just been earmarked for growth. Mm. You know, for new buildings, for new not buildings. a replacement building. And well, this is a 1950s building. Yeah, I was talking to Peggy. Peggy, my secretary. Yeah. About yeah. That. And She'd said she thought it was 58 that this building was built. In yeah, it opened 1958. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we have some, uh, we have a news clipping on that, but we have tons of memorabilia and it was opened as a junior high and we were the shamrocks and God, when my dad was here as a principal, it was, it was a middle school, but it, it was, they were the shamrocks. So they had this fun mascot. And of course me being a beat digger, I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I'm like, what happened to the shamrock when I came over yeah. and they're lions now. And yeah. I feel find that just like why would you ever switch from something so historic unique and historic right yeah. like mm-hmm. has meaning to, for for lion you know, now you're one of uh, there's tons hundreds of, of schools and we we do cool things with the lion you know we like it and it'll it'll oh, forever you, you always yeah it'll forever be a part of the school culture now but we incorporate that shamrock back in wherever we can it's just kind of this cool history and we've had themes with the kids where we've taken the acronym lol and instead of laugh out loud we've called it living our legacy and we brought in all the theme of what it means to be at west jordan middle school so it's really cool to be at a school like this i mean every school has its own dna and every school has something special about its culture but this school has has a really, really rich culture because it's the oldest school in Jordan School District, has a ton of history to it. For me personally, having had my dad here, it means the world to me to like follow his legacy. I have his quote above my door. When I came over, the teachers had quotes above their doors, you know, mm-hmm. like these famous people, whatever their favorite quotes were that inspire them or would inspire their students. And they had the little vinyl cut lettering Mm -hmm. put above their doors. And I didn't have one above my door. And I'm like, we need to get quotes above our doors in the office. I thought, you know what, what would be more fitting than to put one up for my dad? Because he had sat in this same office. What what is the quote? The quote is something that... Was I, when I thought of what's something my dad always used to say, <laughs> well, of course, it was something that would motivate us as kids. It, it's see what needs to be done mm-hmm. and do it. And he used to talk to us kids about that around the house in terms of, I shouldn't have to ask you. <laughs> that, that's, you know, like, sounds like your dad, it's, it's basically, it's basically a flip of, I shouldn't have to ask you to take care of your business and your chores and what you need to do, like you go and take care of your stuff. And it's a quote about leadership. Really. It's a, it's a quote about being perceptive as to like, cause you can sit and be critical mm-hmm. about things. You can sit and look and go, okay, 
you know, this sucks or I don't like how that's running and nah, nah, nah. and you can start being critical about things or you can see, oh, there's a need that's going unmet here. Mm-hmm. This is how something could be better. You don't want to stand around and wait and watch for somebody else to go and fill that hole. You step up and be the one to make it happen. And it's kind of what you were talking about earlier with these parents who are taking their kids out of the public schools. Well, let's 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 roll around on that. You know, because we missed some of the, the pre-conversation <laughs> oh, we missed some here. Of that. No, but it, it's, yeah, it's it's you fine. You know what though, I mean? Like, like, like if you think something's wrong with your neighborhood school, you see what needs to be done, and, and go and, and go do it. Fulfill that need, yeah, or right. find a way to make it better. Because that's your community, mm-hmm. and so, that's for, mm-hmm. for the for the listeners. The point I I okay. brought I brought this up earlier. <laughs> I'm just going to circle back on it. There's this thing that's happening now, and it seems to be happening more and more frequently, where parents in these communities will look at their local public school and feel like there's something wrong with it, and it's not good enough. And these are the engaged parents. These are the parents who have the ability to to volunteer or to help or whatever that might be, and they start taking their kids out of their local public school and putting them either in private schools or sending them off to a charter mm-hmm. because they don't want to help their kids with homework or whatever Mm -hmm. the reason might be white flight yeah you know you know as as a neighborhood becomes more diverse exactly sometimes that happens on sadly yeah and it does it does and the point i'd made that the problem i see with that is that the very people just like you said the very people who could be the ones involved in making the school be the school that they want for their children Mm -hmm. are the ones who are abandoning that particular local school amen amen to that so um, and that, so for all of you who are doing that, stop it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, for all of you who are doing that in the famous words of Bruce Garrison, see what needs to be done and do it. Like you step up and you fill that void. You be mm. part of your community and part of making your community a better place. Well, and so, so on that note, another thing that we had kind of touched on uh, earlier, you've got parents who have these expectations of what a public school is supposed to do, be, have. Mm-hmm whatever it might be. As an educator, what are some of the biggest misconceptions you see the general public having in terms of the role a public school should play versus, of course, the intended purpose of the public education system? I think we expect the schools to do it all. And I'm not talking about the parents who can't be there at night, mm-hmm. who can't like sit down and help their kids do homework because they're working three jobs or something like that. I'm talking about the parent who comes home and they turn on like the bachelorette and zone out while their kids are running around, not doing, not reading, not, tr- you know, mm-hmm. so they're not spending the time at home. Parents with the ability. Mm-hmm. Aren't. Parents, parents who have the time and resources mm-hmm. to help their kids. And then they come in all entitled and the They'll be like, why haven't you got my kid up to whatever level in reading or in math? Or uh, And you're thinking, you own your child's education just as much as we do. You know, we do what we can in these sacred hours. And we come in fully prepped. And that's how we treat it here. And we talk about that here at West Jordan Middle School, how the time the kids spend here is sacred time because it's all we have with them. And sadly, we do have those families in our community that they don't have the time and resources to help their students at home to sit down or even go online with them because they don't even have uh, online access Mm. or whatever. You know, we had a student who was going to the public library to get her science fair project done and just didn't have that Mm. 
mm-hmm. home support and she ended up winning down at BYU the whole state science fair she won this huge award and so we have some really touching stories here at our school so some of the things I see happening though with you know what parents expect it makes me really sad because I have parents in our community who English isn't their first language. Mm-hmm. You know, like our school is over 40% minority and with the largest subgroup of that are Latino or Hispanic families. So you have parents who genuinely want their kids to do well in school and they have a language barrier and they can't help them on their science fair research paper. It's very difficult because they're English learners themselves or mm-hmm. I've been at other schools. I've been at like five different schools now and the entitlement is unreal in some places the entitlement is just sickening and to kind of come in and just expect the educators to do everything and if the kid isn't doing well in school or if the kid is sassy and disrespectful and we deal with that a lot in the middle school kids mm-hmm. are well, yeah. you know hormones Mid- Mid- and they're acting that, out that and... gauntlet that you're required to run <laughs> it's the gauntlet, but yeah. you, once it's over you're always like Oh, good. I, I don't have to do that anymore. I, and I, I live in the never-ending gauntlet. <laughs> we're here, you know, like we're dealing with, and, and, but we love the kids. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also a magical time. And it's a time that's kind of make or break in a kid's education. Because if we can get a kid to be successful, this is their last best chance of making it towards graduation. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot here to propel kids and to sustain kids and to keep them on the path and on target towards graduation because we know how important that is. And we do a lot of enrichments. Another misconception that, you know, these parents who pull their kids out into charter schools and or private or whatever, mm. they think they're doing things better, any better there than we are here. It's they're wrong. Like those teachers, I'm sorry to like, I'm going to, I'm going to go, oh, wi- I'm going to go out on a limb here. By, by all we means. may have to edit this, but I'm just <laughs> saying the teachers that fill the charter schools are the teachers we interview here and we don't want. And I'm sorry, you know, and and a lot of them, they don't have to be endorsed. They don't have to even have the proper credentials. And you can have a real wackadoodle out there teaching your kid in a charter school. And they're not held to, there's no checks and balances. They're not held to the same standards. So it may sound like all, you know, in like these Montessori schools where it's like, oh, the kids come and and we respond to what their interests are. And it's like, okay, great. But when are you going to teach them how to read? You know, and like... Mm You know, it's like, ooh, that's very existential and fun. Mm. But we do very fun, creative things here, too. We have an after-school STEM program. We have MESA. We have math counts. We have all these rigorous enrichments that we bring in. And then on top of that, we are held to a really high standard with the core. We have a really in-depth understanding of this new common core. We have an in-depth understanding of meeting the grade level requirements for teaching kids. And these charter schools, you know, parents go in and they'll say, okay, we only have like no more than 20 in a class or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know what, do your research. Class size is not a big factor on affecting a kid's learning. Go do your research on it. Mm -hmm. The class size has nothing to do with it. That seems to be a huge, a huge misconception that people have, Mm -hmm. have had forever. This idea that the less students in the class, that somehow the quality of the education goes up. Of course, something I grew up thinking too, of course, the more I look into it, the more I realize that a lot of things I thought about school are incorrect. Can you tell us why that is? Why is, why is class size not as Um, big a factor as people think it is? It, it, and then what is the actual 
Because it, it's not so much one-on-one with a teacher, it's the type of pedagogy, it's the type of learning that takes place. So if a teacher is engaging, if a teacher has a lot of higher order thinking activities for their class to do, if they have inquiry-based learning, things that are really engaging to the kids, then then that's what has the greater effect than somebody hovering over a kid and telling them, okay, now do this, now do that, mm-hmm. and just robotically in a very rote way teaching a kid. Sure, there needs to be relationships are huge. You need to get to know your students. You need to have a good rapport and care and show your personality as a teacher and and that kind of thing. But um, class size, I've seen a lot of research on it and it just, it doesn't seem to be as big a make or break thing as people think. you've, You've made me kind of think of my favorite teachers, you know, as I was, mm-hmm. as I was going through elementary and middle school and high school, as you, you talked about the type of engagement and the ways of teaching. And my favorite teachers all weren't the ones who taught me how to do a process so much as the ones who taught me how to think about the process. Mm-hmm. And it seems kind of like that's what you're getting at. Like the, yeah. we get this idea of like, we have to learn these X, Y, Z things. And I know a lot of people have been up at arms, particularly about the math and common core, mm-hmm. because it's a different way of doing it than we grew up doing. Right. Yeah. Like we were it's memorizing, we were yeah. doing rote memorization. Mm-hmm. And as I go through this with my kids and like, no, I have to do it this way. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. But the more I looked into it, the more I understood what was going They're on. Teaching was the thinking the and teaching the, thinking, the process, the, the, yeah. how, to, how to problem solve and how to think through to the end of a problem right. and how to get there and I mean, even problem challenge or whatever it might be so that that's a skill that doesn't just exist in math like memorizing right. your times tables that's only handy for you can have doing times tables right yeah but l- <laughs> learning your way through having a mathematical mind a thinking and reasoning reasoning mm-hmm. mind a problem solving mind like i would thrive in this new math curriculum. I had a hard time in math because I'm not a linear thinker. I'm a mm-hmm. creative thinker. I'm a more visual learner uh, or, or auditory learner even. Mm-hmm. I'm not a puzzle solver. And math traditionally has been, you're good at figuring out this puzzle and yeah. this this method. E- equation, and this equation yeah, yeah, just very linear. And now even the teachers ha- are having a hard time because they were good at the old math. And now they're having to think in a more integrated way and have a problem solving mind. And the nice thing about it is you don't feel as left behind like if I'm a learner and I struggled on this last unit of math we jump we're jumping into the next unit of math it's like a fresh start it's not like I had to know every single thing from Mm -hmm. this last unit I'm getting engaged in something new mm-hmm. and I can lock it's back, like, like, a, like, a reset. like plug back yeah. in, like reset. It's not like I'm left behind. So the way of thinking with math has changed. So it's, it's great. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, from where I'm at, I notice it with my kids, uh, my oldest Noah had to start doing it a little bit. Like I think he was in third grade when they had to start teaching it differently or when we started seeing it. But then I look at uh, Keith, who's in kindergarten, how quick he is with mathematical type stuff. Part of it, I, I think is ability, but part of it is he's, he's been learning it in a different way. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not that rote memorization. Yeah. Um, Cause like my youngest, she'll have, she'd have no problem with the rote memorization. That kid remembers everything. Yeah. But my other kids, they're process thinkers, you mm-hmm. know? And so you can see when Keithy, when you'll ask him oh. like just a simple math question, he can, he can do it in his head because he's got a way to get there. He's yeah. not thinking three plus four. That's right. I remember, I remember three plus four, seven, three plus four is seven, right? Yeah. He runs the process and you can see him. He stops and he thinks about it 
And you can see he's not counting on his fingers or anything, but he can do it in his head. And I can only imagine it has to do with being taught differently, taught differently. as opposed to just, I have a math prodigy on my hands because right. I, I'm not sure any of my kids have the DNA of math prodigy. You know, <laughs> they've got a, a couple of singers as, as, as parents. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, music has played a great deal into all kinds of learning. The skills it takes to be a musician and reading music and rhythm and discipline of practice mm-hmm. with music. So applying that to another area. It definitely, I find that my kids who are here at the school and they're into instrumental music in mm-hmm. particular, like if they've learned, they've picked up an instrument, they're generally really good students overall because they've learned some sort of discipline and resiliency. And they've learned that cycle of I'm going to practice and improve where a lot of times kids who haven't had that experience, they get into like a math class and they fail and they don't do well on some problems or whatever it is they're learning. They don't have that vision of it's okay. Like you're going to learn it. You're going to get there. It'd be like expecting somebody to come in and just start playing the violin, you know, and making beautiful music. Well, that violinist had to start Mm -hmm. somewhere, you know, they had to start on their very first note and how to hold their fingers and all this. When you have to go through the sounding bad phase, right? nobody's immediately good at anything, Uh generally speaking. And so there's a, there's a lot of kids we've tried to dispel that whole, when kids say, Oh, I'm not good at math. And we're like, no, you just haven't been exposed to it enough. It's like, if I were trying to learn to play an instrument, I could say, I'm not good at guitar yet it's it's a growth mindset so i find the kids that play a musical instrument have learned like oh because they they start off not being able to do anything and it sounds horrible Mm. you know like whatever and then all of a sudden it comes together after they've practiced and practiced i think those kids learn some resiliency because they get that payoff where Mm. other kids don't quite understand that that's how everything works Mm -hmm. that's how all learning works so as, a, as an administrator, you're a principal here at West Jordan Middle. What do you find are the most effective things? Like say I was a parent in your school and I was mm-hmm. a parent who had limited time and resources with which to contribute to the community. What's the most effective thing a parent can do for their child in school or to help overall in the school? The most effective thing they can do to help their child is, is the one get them here every day. (laughs) I mean, I know that sounds funny, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of kids with school anxiety these days and and things like that. And they get into the habit of staying home or they call and they leave. So one is making school important in the home saying, we don't just miss a day of school for no reason. We don't just blow it off. And so making school a priority, like we we do school in Mm -hmm. this household, you're expected to be there every day and you're expected to engage and do well. So supporting and, and making it clear to the students that, hey, school is your job. You mm-hmm. know, mom and dad have their jobs and school is your job and, and getting that respect instilled in the student. And then just talking with them about what they're learning, making it fun at home to share about what they're learning because they never have anything to attach it to. They just come here and it's just this limited experience in the classroom And they can't connect it to their relationships at home with their parents and their siblings. My parents, again, being educators, we'd come home and they would say, okay, empty out your backpacks. Let's see what you did today and talk about 
oh, okay, what was this about? And show some genuine interest. And just, it took not even five minutes, but it made a big difference to be held accountable at home. And maybe sometime I'd come home and share something I did. And then my mom would tell a great story about, oh, you know, when I was school in school, this happened, or your aunt had this, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you start to share your, your experiences. So I think the greatest thing that a parent can do is just to stay connected with their kids. And I know it's, it's a challenge because I definitely have my own, I'm on my phone and email a lot. You know, I could, I could come home, I get hundreds of emails a day and mm-hmm. inundated as a principal. I could come home and get behind my laptop and just zone out and not engage with the kids. So I'd say taking that time to read with your kids in the evenings, um, read together as a family. I know there's families that never, ever even read together or have story time with their kids or take an interest if your teen is reading some young adult literature or some, you know, that's why some of these really wildly popular novels like the Harry Potter series, I mean, that was so great for education altogether just because it was whole families reading those, yeah, those were, that's a young adolescent literature, uh-huh. but all, everybody, adult, was, everybody reading was reading them. And it makes a big difference. So that's how I would support students at home. I don't see our schools as having a tremendous lack of resources. I've had everything I need personally as a principal. I make it a big priority. If you're focused on your goals, I've got my school down to a one-to-one ratio where I've got Chromebooks in every classroom. Mm -hmm. And um, so technology is a big deal and staying up on that. And I mean, it's great to join that PTA and, and throw in your your five buck membership like that, that definitely goes towards incentives and helps things in in the culture of the school. Those parents who can come and volunteer, it's huge in the elementary schools. I think in the middle schools, it's a little harder because the middle school kids don't want those parents in their classroom. (laughs) They're like, they're like, what is she doing here? You know, like I'll have my PTA parents come through and the kids are shy to have their parents here. But if you really want to make a difference, give your principal a call and say, Hey, is there a need? Is there a volunteer? If you have time to volunteer, Mm. we can always put you to work in a school. I could put you to work tomorrow as a classroom well, not tomorrow because school's out as of today. <laughs> Come August, Keith, uh-huh. if you had a student here, I could put you to work in a classroom as a classroom assistant and say, okay, well, if you really want to volunteer and you can come once a week, why don't you go into this class and help the teacher with this group of students? And we could always use volunteers in the classroom and and even doing things to help the teachers like, you know, running copies or cutting stuff up and getting things ready. And it makes a big difference. That's nice. (laughs) You gave me ideas. I'm like, I thought we were doing pretty good. It's like, well, we can do a little bit more here and there. And so that was... Well, showing up to your kids' things, too. Like, I mean, Mm. if there's a family night, if there's a dad and donuts reading day, if if they're they're in the choir and they have a choir performance, you know, don't just drop them off for the performance. Come in and and, and be that visible parent that comes out to the events. It sounds like the, in terms of everything, big, big picture, the most important thing you can do is let your child know that you actually care about their, their education yeah. and what they're doing in their life because now you're an adult you know you see things from a different view but i, I mean i remember being in school and that's mm-hmm. everything nothing that happens outside of school seems to matter even though it matters so much mm-hmm. you know when i was a kid in my head and i'm assuming in a lot of kids heads 
what happens at home is irrelevant. Uh-huh. But what happens at school is everything because that's where their peer group is and that's right. where their social the kids, interactions yeah. are happening. And so it sounds like just to be involved in such a way that there's that balance where your kid doesn't feel like you're trying to pry into their space, mm-hmm. but that you also are involved and interested in what's going on in their life and that yeah. you, you give it weight. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's really easy as parents for us to be like, that's not important. You shouldn't be so upset about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I talk, my, my daughter has crushes all over the place and I'll be like, all right, honey, well, you know, there's lots of other boys. Like, but nobody's as wonderful as this boy. She's, yeah. she's nine. Oh, wow. You know, oh, yeah, I've, that's a whole <laughs> other thing. But the idea that, I don't know, maybe as a parent that I can not triage down what's important in their life yeah, just because it doesn't seem to compare with what's important in my life mm-hmm. in terms of making sure my work is going well and I can pay the bills and put food on the table and, and all of that. But to give what's important to them that weight. In the elementary schools, they spend more time with that teacher than they do with you as their Mm -hmm. parent at home. So checking in with that teacher saying, how's my kid doing? You know, what kind of behaviors do they have? Or is there anything that you need that I could help with? Can I send some back to school supplies? Mm -hmm. Or is there a day coming when the kids are going to be giving their reports that you might need some help running herd on the kids Uh that day? Herding the cats, so to speak. I went a couple weeks ago, I got this email from my little twins are in second grade Mm -hmm. and I I got this email from their teacher that they might have to cancel their field trip to the discovery museum because they couldn't get enough parent volunteers. And I was thinking, well, what the heck, Uh, you know, I'm a single working mom, but I'm going to go take this day off because that's Mm -hmm. important. I want my kids to have this experience. And I didn't do it enough with my older one. I've always worked. I've always been yeah, an educator. I, for... As an educator and as a teacher, man, it's you can't leave school very easily. And um, but then I thought, you know, I missed out with my older daughter, and I remember her asking, "Hey, can you come on this field trip or this or that?" And I ended up going on this field trip, and the other parents that were there were in the same boat as me. There were these this other. Uh, this other little boy's mom, she was like, Hey, what's up with the single moms? Like representing today, you know, the single working moms are putting everything aside to come on this little field trip. But and it meant the world to our kids. And, and how awful would that have been if their little field trip got canceled to the, the discovery museum or the children's museum and if, just, if we just had for no, lack of parent volunteers. Yeah, lack of parent volunteers. And I was I was kind of scratching my head at that. I'm like, I know there's a lot of stay-at-home moms that should have been able to come to this. You know, mm. I'm kind of jealous of those stay-at-home moms. <laughs> I've never been one. It's okay. Like, I mm. love what I do. And I love that I get to be a part of so many kids' lives. But I was not about to let my own kids, you mm. know, something that was important for them. I've been trying to pay attention to just general things. I, I like to know a little bit about everything. And that that's yeah. part of what makes doing this podcast you're, fun too. Is I, just, man. I just get to talk to a lot of different people and learn a lot of different things. I don't want to take up too okay. much more of your time. You've given me so much awesome information. I do have some weird questions I like okay. to ask though. What's the worst piece of advice somebody has ever given you? Oh, God. The worst piece of advice. I, I've, I've never thought of that. Was, um, that's why I like it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I guess I, I guess it wouldn't be the worst piece of advice. It's mm-hmm. just something I've learned is to not be swayed so much by what others think or want you to do. For me, it hasn't really been the worst advice somebody's given me, but it's just been listening to other people 
and not really finding what I care about the most. Over the years, it's been a process for me to get to where I'm like feeling like my authentic self. And mm-hmm. so the the worst advice I would say somebody could, could, collect, could give, yeah. collectively gave me was to like tell me what to do or how I should be or have an expectation. Maybe wasn't going to be my happiness. I don't know if that made, if that, that made sense. I, I love that so much. Yeah. Now the flip side, what do you feel like is one of the best pieces of advice someone has given you? Um, and I'm assuming you got a lot I, of it as you, as again, you got I'm, into education, but yeah, I remember when I was interning and I was working with this vice principal and you know, he said, our, our job is to be the saviors of kids. And we're here to be the advocates for these kids and to take care of them. So that that was really good advice. And I listened to him a lot. And he told me about, as an administrator, you're, there's a line of authority. Don't ever stab your boss in the back. And that has served me well because I, I see a lot of people who talk bad about their bosses or their colleagues and just like trash talking people. I think that has been the the best advice is to just not be critical or backstab people that you work with or work, especially who you work for, because you're there to assist them. And we all have our flaws. Like we all live in glass houses. (laughs) You know, we're not, none of us are perfect Mm. and you can start to second guess or trash talk somebody you work with or work for. So, and it just doesn't do, going back to this whole theme of, it just doesn't do anyone any good to be critical if you see something that's a problem to, like, try to help the situation rather than just be disparaging about someone or something. Yeah. So that was really good advice was just to not talk behind people's backs, like just be a positive person. People fall into that a lot. Oh, oh yeah. It's, uh, yeah. well, it's, it's easier to do than to do something. I mean, back to, to right. your dad's quote, it, it is easier to point out a, a shortcoming than it is to be involved in the solution. It's easier to be critical of things yeah. and to come up with something that's going to fix it or help it or, or do the work to fill in a void. Yeah. Cool. Well, again, thanks so much. Okay. I appreciate it. <laughs> this is fun. Right. It's great to see you. So there you have it. Just a couple of things to learn. And hopefully you learned as much as I did in terms of what might be different than you thought with public schools and which is with people in general. And that's, again, the whole point of this is to have these conversations, talk to people and try and get some points of view that maybe we hadn't considered or maybe we hadn't thought about. This was just a a great experience for me talking to Dixie. I hope that you enjoyed it as well. If you have any questions or comments or just want to reach out, you can uh, find me at findinghomepodcast at gmail.com. That's findinghomepodcast at gmail.com. You can also just go straight to findinghomepodcast.com. Throw me a, a comment or some information. If you have a question, if you'd like to be on the podcast, please let me know and we can arrange something and try and get people's stories told. Really try and bring us together as a community, even though we are far more diverse than anyone might think. So with that, I will talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye.